Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, when did we first start sending holiday cards? And will the tradition ever end? Plus, the health risks for humans in space and a high-tech sleeping bag that could prevent astronauts' vision from deteriorating. And Keanu Reeves explains what was going on in the infamous sad Keanu photo. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So yesterday, I briefly mentioned Salvador Dali's collaboration with Hallmark to create a series of holiday-themed cards, some for Christmas and some for other holidays. So today, especially as I stare guiltily at the massive pile of my own unsent holiday cards, I thought I'd dive into the history of holiday cards. When and why did we start sending each other illustrated greetings to mark various holidays or occasions throughout the year? Well, sending New Year's greetings had been popular in Europe since at least the 1400s. These were usually messages, or if they had some kind of illustrated element, they were just flat like a postcard, not folded. And they weren't usually mass-produced. Some credits source Thomas Shorrock of Scotland with producing the first set of New Year's cards in the 1840s. His had a smiling man in the snow and was printed with the words, A good New Year to ya. But things really took off under the direction of Sir Henry Cole in 1843. Now, by this point, English people, at least, had been exchanging Valentine's cards for a couple of decades, and people, especially in the middle and upper class, were also accustomed to sending letters around Christmas or New Year's to all of their acquaintances. And all of that letter writing to so many acquaintances was a lot of work, though. So Cole commissioned artist John Calcott Horsley to illustrate a card with a happy family celebrating a Christmas feast. He printed 1,000 of these engraved cards and sold them to people to send out. It didn't catch on immediately, though, because people thought it was a poor, impersonal replacement for full-on letters, given that the cards had much less room to pen all of your updates and gratitude or what have you. In the beginning, Cole and others' Christmas cards sometimes retained a lot of the visual imagery of the Valentine's Day cards, lots of lace and flowers and very few symbols specific to winter or Christmas. But they did slowly become more Christmassy and more popular, especially as advances in printing and mail services improved, and by the 1860s, they were hugely popular in the United Kingdom and growing in popularity in the United States. Now, over in the United States, it was German immigrant Louis Prang, who really kicked off the tradition with his chroma-lithographed cards featuring fine art. They were reasonably priced for what they were, but still not cheap, and he was soon undercut by more cheaply made cards coming from Germany. He's still often referred to as the father of American Christmas cards for his contributions, however. Now, this was also around the same time that little gifts called gym cracks or sometimes doodads became popular as yet another substitute for the long personal letters that used to be sent to all of one's acquaintances. But, quoting from Bruce David Forbes's Christmas A Candid History, eventually even the purchase of inexpensive presents for so many people became a burden both in time and cost. One story store owner recalled a time when the majority of our women customers came into the store with a Christmas list which was literally a yard long. After 1910, people began to drop the Jim Crack fad in favor of Christmas cards, which were both more personal and more practical. End quote. Now, this was around the time that the practice of sending Christmas cards and greeting cards in general extended beyond the upper classes to anyone who could afford it and wanted to do so. 
Halloween cards were also popular in America, where other German entrepreneurs like Raphael Tuck and John Winch produced highly artistic lithographs pulling on real, perceived, and invented folklore of Scotland and Ireland. As David J. Skull points out in his book Halloween, The History of America's Darkest Holiday, these postcards give us one of the best insights into how the holiday was celebrated in the first few decades of the 20th century, showing some of the symbols that we still associate with Halloween today and others that would look quite different to our modern eye, like the pre-Wizard of Oz movie witches who are dressed in colorful patchworks more like the witch's book description than the all-black of Maggie Hamilton's Wicked Witch that we now associate with witches. I'm hugely fascinated by turn-of-the-century holiday cards for all of the holidays. I can already tell that researching and collecting these kinds of cards is probably going to become my nerdy retirement hobby, like some people collect stamps. I'm trying to accept it about myself. But anyways, Halloween postcards were never nearly as popular a custom as their Christmas counterparts. Quoting a 2015 JSTOR Daily article, Yale anthropologist Michaela D. Leonardo explains that the practice thrived amid post-bellum industrialization and the demise of the family farm. As relatives spread out geographically, women assumed responsibility for the work of kinship and became caretakers of extended family connections. Christmas cards were a convenient way for them to nurture relationships among their husbands, children, and distant relatives, end quote. And DiLeonardo notes that as late as the 1980s, the sending of holiday cards was still delegated to women, many of whom were deciding it simply wasn't worth it anymore. But her research showed that even if they decided not to send them, they were still not free because most reported feeling guilty and defensive about not sending them and not keeping in touch with family. JSTOR Daily also shares another study that could explain some of these feelings and many of our compulsion to send out tokens of gratitude or acknowledgement at the end of the year. Quote, buying holiday cards may satisfy deep-seated subconscious needs. In 1947's Art and Cultural Symbolism, a psychological study of greeting cards, William E. Henry analyzed cards as tools people used to convey feelings and wishes to one another through symbols which stand for these feelings. In a communal context, Henry noted, Christmas cards are widely understood to represent a formal celebration of ideas of personal warmth and home feelings, visions of the return Turn to a protected childhood status and an opportunity to formally assuage parent-directed hostilities. His study detailed how the choices consumers make in selecting cards often result from their individual desires and personalities. For one buyer, a card may satisfy unmet affiliation needs, and in another, bolster feelings of self-respect. In other words, sending cards is not only a gesture of goodwill, but also an act of expression for oneself. End quote. Now, given how deeply down greeting cards somehow seem to hit us, it is no surprise that they've lasted as long as they have. Although projections a few years ago expected digital alternatives and then the pandemic to reduce expenditure on greeting cards and postage, some reports show that it actually rose in 2019 and then again in 2020 after a small dip in previous years. And according to the Washington Post, my fellow millennials are part of the reason that holiday card sales are going back up. At Paper Source, their holiday card sales have increased 14% since 2019, and a small Washington-based company called Collida Dope found sales skyrocketing during the pandemic as people wanted to reach out and spread some cheer to people they hadn't seen in a while. 
So, despite the many times over the years that critics have thought the holiday card fad would die down, whether because they were too impersonal, and then too tacky, and then too threatened by digital alternatives or pandemic-tightened budgets, they show no signs of going anywhere anytime soon. The health and safety of astronauts has always been a high priority at NASA, but as more and more people venture into space, including an increasing number of people who have not been through the rigorous training and selection process of the formal astronaut program, the health risks that humans encounter in space is becoming a bigger concern. Because, you know, it's one thing to devote your life to something knowing full well what the risks are and be trained over many years on how to mitigate and respond to those risks, but it's another to be given a crash course for a one-off adventure. Not to mention, even those formally trained might be going on longer and longer missions where the health risks only amplify. So at NASA's Space Flight for Everybody virtual symposium last month, those health risks and the solutions being worked on took center stage. According to Space.com, the presentation at the symposium divided the main health risks into five major categories. Radiation, altered gravity, distance from Earth, and the mental and physical risks of isolation and confinement in a closed environment. Now, that distance from Earth piece is a really big one, because it makes every other part of the puzzle harder the further you get from our home planet. Quoting Space.com, On the International Space Station, astronauts aren't too far from us, and we can routinely send supplies to the crews in orbit, but a mission to the Moon or Mars would pose more problems. Communication delays would increase, and there would likely be communication blackouts, said Sharmi Watkins, Assistant Director for Exploration in NASA's Human Health and Performance Directorate, who served as a panel analyst for this discussion. She said it would also take longer to get back to Earth if there was a medical emergency, end quote. And in preparing for those lunar and Martian missions, in which Watkins says we're no longer talking about hours to return if there's an emergency, but days or weeks and months in the case of Mars, so, NASA tests what they can on Earth first. There are isolation experiments conducted in Antarctica, radiation exposure experiments conducted on Long Island, and as they prepare for the upcoming lunar mission, they'll do experiments in low Earth orbit. And then to prepare for Mars, they'll run experiments on the Moon. Quoting again, NASA has over 800 health standards that they've developed based on current research. These standards describe everything from how much space astronauts should have in a spacecraft to how much muscle and bone loss an astronaut can experience without being seriously harmed. These standards also include levels of physical fitness and health the astronauts need to meet before going into space. End quote. One of those health requirements is 2020 vision, but a cruel irony of that requirement is that after they've been in space, astronauts often return with worse vision. Notably, this happens more often and to more severe a degree in men than in women based on NASA's findings. Of astronauts who've spent at least six months in space, more than half report some type of vision problems when they return. Basically what's happening is that the zero-gravity environment causes fluids to float into the astronauts' heads, which over time squashes their eyeballs. NASA is investigating a lot of the causes and some solutions for this because one question is whether it gets worse the longer you're in space. So thinking about those long-term missions to Mars, could people's vision progressively get so bad that they can't perform basic functions needed to carry out maintenance and survival? 
Well, first, a little bit more on why this happens, quoting Engadget. Fluids tend to accumulate in the head when you sleep, but on Earth, gravity pulls them back down into the body when you get up. In the low gravity of space, though, more than a half gallon of fluid collects in the head. That, in turn, applies pressure to the eyeball, causing flattening that can lead to vision impairment, a disorder called spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome, or SANS. Dr. Benjamin Levine discovered SANS by flying cancer patients aboard zero-G parabolic flights. They still had ports in their heads to receive chemotherapy, which gave researchers an access point to measure pressure within their brains. End quote. But Dr. Levine and his team at UT Southwestern Medical Center, in partnership with REI, have developed a suction-based sleeping bag that could counteract the effects of SANS. Quoting the BBC, The sleeping bag fits around the person's waist, enclosing their lower body within a solid frame. A suction device that works on the same principle as a vacuum cleaner creates a pressure difference that draws fluid down towards the feet. This prevents it from building up in the brain and applying damaging pressure to the eyeball. End quote. Early tests have been successful, showing no change to the eyeball's shape, and the team thinks it might even solve another problem of atrial fibrillation, in which the heart beats irregularly while in space and possibly even shrinks. The sleeping bag could help fix that by counteracting abnormal blood flow, according to the BBC. Dr. Levine says there are still a lot of questions like, you know, how long do you need to use the sleeping bag for? Do you need to use it as soon as you get to space? Do only people at risk of SANS have to do it? There's a long way to go, but Dr. Levine hopes they'll have figured out a solution to this vision issue, if not with the sleeping bag, perhaps with something else, before NASA sends humans to Mars. Last night on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Keanu Reeves appeared and finally explained the sad Keanu meme. Now, if you don't know it by name, you've probably seen it before. It's a paparazzi photo of Keanu Reeves from 2010, sitting on a park bench mid-chew of a sandwich that he's holding in one hand, and he's looking at the ground, appearing to be utterly dejected. Over the last 10 years, it has been memed to within an inch of its life, spawned celebration days to cheer up Keanu, and helped encourage the mythos of Reeves as a generally sad, philosophic person. He did briefly address the meme a few times back in 2011-ish, but never really said much about it. Back then, there was still a sort of, oh wow, look what these internet users did kind of vibe from a lot of the mainstream media that was interviewing him, and I think Reeves himself was still sort of confused by the whole thing, but not overly upset about it. Now, over a decade on from the birth of the meme, it has come full circle. In his new comic series, Berserker, co-written with Matt Kind and illustrated by Ron Garney, Garney drew a panel of the lead character, 80,000-year-old half-man, half-god Berserker, sitting on a park bench in the rain as he contemplates the challenges in his life, looking very reminiscent of his creator's legendary meme. Now, Reeves says that he didn't know Garney was going to do that in their comic book, but that he thought it was a pretty cool move. And he also took a minute to tell Colbert what was going on when that famed photo was taken. He cops that he had some stuff going on, but that mostly he was just hungry. He was just eating a sandwich. And if you need any further proof that Keanu Reeves is not sad, at least not in an all-consuming way at the moment, I definitely recommend watching his full appearance on Colbert. It was seriously joyful. At one point, he broke into an impromptu riff of Lean On Me, but singing Meme On Me. 
It was a lot of fun. And if you hadn't heard about it before, the comic Berserker is based on an idea that Reeves had been kicking around for years. It became the best-selling debut comic in 30 years when it came out earlier this year, and Netflix has already secured the rights for the film and anime series adaptations, both of which will star Reeves as Berserker, or B, as the character is known. And you can read more about Berserker from Reeves, Kent, and Garney in an interview with Mashable that I'll drop the link to in the show notes. All right, well, that's all I got for you today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.